Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we spoke to a Chicago author about Zine's death and capitalism, an undocumented immigrant teacher living in the shadows, and a pair of immigration activists about the real-world consequences of deportation. All this and more, plus the Trump Diaries, on Lumpen Week in Review for May 5th, 2017. I-94 spoke to Chicago author and sociologist Anne Elizabeth Moore about zines, capitalism, misogyny, and how she'd like to go out. This excerpt is a sneak peek at the forthcoming episode of Lumpen's book and literature series. I-94 airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. Today we have a very special guest. We have a native Chicagoan and, in fact, a zine legend here with us, Anne Elizabeth Moore, uh, who is the editor and one of the founders of Punk Planet and has a new book out called Body Horror. Anne, thank you so much for coming back to our town. And, oh, uh, God, I'll come back anytime. One of the questions I wanted to ask is I've, I, was, I, would, I moved to Chicago in 1995, and I, I liked how you said you moved here because of music um, in the book, and I, I did as well. I was going to school in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I dropped out and I moved here. And I will admittedly say I wasn't very politically active until the Bush administration um, just because things changed drastically. And I'm not a huge Clinton defender or anything, but I didn't become, I became much more aware when the Bush administration took over. Um, But I wanted to ask you, of all the interviews you did for Punk Planet, were you an interviewer? I just want to make sure. I, I had, I remember. Were, I, was I interviewing? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Okay. All of it. I didn't know if there was essays and stuff that you did, too. I, I, I've read that I book. I forgot what it's called. Unmarketable? No, the one about the interviews from Punk Oh, Planet. the We Owe You Nothing. Yes. Nothing, yeah. yeah. So what I wanted to ask you, just going back to the Punk Planet days, is what was your most memorable or aggravating interviews that you did back in the day? Well, I mean, I w- so I was around when Punk Planet was founded, but I didn't come back then to to like really work in the office until 2004. So between 2004 and when we shut down in 2007, um, that was that was pretty much my era. Um, and at that time, you know, there was a lot going on in 2004. The main thing that we sort of don't realize was probably the most influential was that that was when. All of the decisions that Bush Jr. made around post-9-11 um, politics, particularly the Department of Homeland Security, that was when the Department of Homeland Security actually was fully staffed and operational. And so everything that was like anti-terrorist, which of course is like austerity measures and, and problems and policing and surveillance, was in place then. So for me, I was in a, in a very sort of concise political moment um, that was about the post-9-11 world really flourishing. So all of the exciting interviews I was doing were people that were sort of on the front lines of cultural production that were doing really amazing work that brought that moment to light. Um, and it was a lot of, of course, for me, this all of those things about surveillance and capitalism. These are, you know, issues of gender in their, in their forefront. Um, so for me, all of the like post riot girl stuff was really exciting, and all of the non-binary and and crip queer artists that we were talking to were were doing the that work at that time. Um, but I mean, of course, like every day was just a ridiculous, <laughs> a ridiculous experience, and I probably could just go on for hours talking 
about, uh, I don't know, the day that, <sighs> I, don't, I don't even want to start because I'll just get a lot of people in trouble. That's okay. Chris, uh, Punk Planet shut down because of the distribution problem, isn't that right? One of the independent Sort of secondarily, that, yeah. yeah. I mean, what we can look at is, is a whole history of government tightening around uh, mailing rates and uh, things that made distribution difficult for small to medium-scale magazines. Um, but, of course, like that's set against uh, the psychological effects of neoliberalism where people are like, I don't really need to support this thing. It's here already. It'll be fine without me. And and these things don't affect me in a personal way. And so subscribers were dropping and people were more and more deliberately saying um, independent production does not differ in any significant way from corporate production. And that was what, of course, Unmarketable was written about 10 years ago. And that was really the biggest bummer was this shift in consciousness from like, it doesn't matter who pays you to, um, well, from it matters who pays you to it doesn't matter who pays you. And that's really interesting because Punk Planet was part of a wave of magazines that now no longer exist. There was a huge and vibrant culture. Um, Fact Sheet 5, Stop Smiling, smiling. Um, Your Flesh. Uh, You guys, Punk Planet, I believe, covered almost every band that sent... um, uh, piece of music to them. We yeah, we reviewed everything we received for yeah. over a decade. Yeah, so I mean, and there's nothing like that now. If you think of the knock-on effects of that now, though, where whereas you used to be able to pick up a magazine and find out everything that was going on a particular cultural moment from from books and music, now it's nearly impossible. People are are relying on Spotify algorithms to find things yeah. or Condé Nast owned websites, yeah. and that's not the same thing as a kind of a curatorial approach which you guys took. And I, I wonder if you could just speak briefly to what we've kind of lost as a result of that. Well, I mean, Punk Planet, when we shut down, was the primary platform for approximately 500 writers, cultural producers, graphic designers, illustrators. And many of those people have gone on to find other work. But the work that they did that defined their career and and put them in a place to know the kinds of stuff they would be doing for the rest of their lives was done at Punk Planet. So the loss of those 500 voices having absolute intellectual freedom to just do what they wanted, that's a loss that we won't, we can't even detect what the impact of that is. That's, um, that's gutting to me. Well, that's what's happened to journalism in general. You know, exactly. You know, people exactly. are paid $20 to write a blog article when back in the day, you know, you might have a job. And it's also, I like what you said about the government tightening because one of the neoliberal platforms is like small business small business but yeah. small businesses don't have any advantages especially i mean if you own a mon pa in chicago whether it be a coffee shop or a barber shop like my barber wouldn't give money to the, my alderman's platform and then the city came the next day and told him to take his sign down i'm not oh going to say God. the alderman's name but his initials Amazing. are eb mm-hmm. and um you know it's like things like that and government doesn't support small business you know no. they use that term but like when they refer to small business like 50 million or less you know and it's, yeah. it's it's kind of a disgraceful thing and people buy into that and think that these tax breaks are coming so people like you and you and i can start something and it's just not true yeah and and of course when we even say the word small business in a government context the 
immediate hope is that that business will scale up and it will become a large business and then we will partner with government and then everything will be amazing for for both of us, right? But that's not in any way supportive of a general population. Exactly. And it's Ed Burke. I'm going to say it. <laughs> Thank you, Jamie. I was going to say it, but I'm glad that you did. I mean, that's an interesting thing, though. But the idea that a business has to grow all the time to just be viable yeah. is a concept that really is rarely examined correctly because that's not actually true. A business does not always have to grow to be successful and be self-sustaining. And there's this idea in our culture that if you don't have growth at any cost, you're, you're dead. And that's a bizarre thing to me. Yeah, and that was really what was happening in the 1990s around sort of independent cultural production like Punk Planet was this realization that actually, no, you didn't need to grow. You needed to serve. You needed to work among the people that supported you in creating the thing in the first place and that that was what we actually now call sustainable. And now that sustainable means theoretically like long-term future ever-expanding growth and sort of the lapping in of all sorts of other um, processes in order to sustain yourself, we don't even know how to, like, make a sustainable sort of framework for economic security anymore. That reminds me of, uh, I went to um, Memphis recently, and they have uh, this... this pyramid that used to be a stadium, which they've turned into this giant bass pro shop. Wow. And my wife and I went there just because they have alligators there, and I wanted to see the alligators. And we were, like, walking through. It's crazy yeah. how big it is. And my wife looked at me. She's like, this lifestyle is not sustainable. And it was like, <laughs> it was, and we just started cracking up because we it was, like, so stated in the obvious. But it, it's, it's, it's insane how much stuff is produced. Like, yeah. I recently w- went and I... Google like White Sox hats. Yeah. And there's like thousands of White Sox hats. You know, it's one team in one city that's not a very good team that probably doesn't sell a lot of merchandise. Hey, hey, it's the best team in baseball in April. Now come oh, on. That's true. Come on. Okay, April's come over on. though. Yeah. April's over. <laughs> but but you know what I'm saying? It's like there's so much stuff. Yeah. And it's like, how are we gonna continue this? It, it it's one of those things I can't think about too much because I'm like, you know Well, not I mean, so one of the pieces that was in consideration for the book that builds on some of the labor reporting that I've done, looks at the impact of that hyper-production mode in Cambodia. And what we saw in Cambodia between uh, 2007, when I first started going there, and 2014, which was my last trip there. I was going to ask, did you live there or did you just spend it? I spent a part of every year there, yeah, Um, was that production was amping up so rapidly that workers were failing to actually physically be able to respond, and they were falling to the floor, fainting in mass numbers between 800 on the small end and 2,500 on the large end. And this still continues today. So production is so high, capitalist production, like pretty clearly, that women's bodies are failing to be able to keep up with it, which is how we get sort of the misogyny and then how we start to look at this as an impact specifically on on the the failures of women's bodies to keep up with capitalist demand. Radio Free Bridgeport spoke to State Rep. Teresa Ma about her first session in Springfield. 
Moss spoke about unexpected bipartisanship and friendships and how to lobby an official and that there really is a divide between Chicago and downstate. Radio Free is Lumpen's Tuesday drive time talk show airing from 4 to 6 p.m. Welcome back to Radio Free Bridgeport on WLPN. This is John Daly, and welcome to Radio Free Bridgeport one more time. We're joined by a representative of the 2nd District, Teresa Ma. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I think it's a great challenge. You know, despite some of the frustrations that we're experiencing in Springfield, uh, I I do have an opportunity to work on legislation that um, I propose and work on with advocacy groups, things I believe in, and then I sign on to legislation that my colleagues propose. So there is an opportunity to get things done, to you know negotiate um, language of legislation, work on getting things passed. Um, so it's been exciting. It's it's been a full. Um, rewarding experience so far. Can you speak a little bit about the frustrations? Obviously, in the community, there there's no budget, and there are a lot of frustrations with the current impasse between uh, the legislature and the governor. Yes. Well, that's been a huge frustration. And um, yeah, what can I say about it, except that, um, you know, what people see on TV, you know, these ads that the governor's been putting out there, um, you know, they're designed to shape people's thinking about this issue. I mean, really, it's the, the governor who's holding up the passage of a budget. We haven't had a budget in three years. He's got conditions that are very unreasonable. They threaten the middle class. And their colleagues in, in, on both sides of the aisle who want a budget passed, right? It's having a huge impact on people in the community. I hear about the uh, the suffering that uh, people experience because of a lack of budget. It's it's awful, and we we desperately desperately need a budget. But you know we have a governor who's who's putting these conditions on the passage of a budget that are not reasonable, and um, you know he's being political. You know he's campaigning right now as we speak. He's going around the state when he should be doing his job. This is your third time. I think you're the the highest reoccurring uh, guest we've had here on the show in over two years. Yeah, it might have something to do with proximity because we're here on uh, Morgan Street. <laughs> but I'm just kidding. It's but an honor. Kyle it's, it's really an honor to be here. But I love in, it. All, in all seriousness, uh, uh, you know, very much. Thank you. You came here uh, when you were a candidate. You came here uh, right before you went to session, mm-hmm. um, and we talked about the things that are most impacted by the budget. Obviously. Um, social workers and social care, the things that have a huge impact um, on, uh, you know, violence. And uh, we talked about education. We talked about health care, everything that's coming back up federally and, and in the state right now um, and is still affected by the impact. Right. So we, we have social service agencies that haven't been paid in, you know, a year and a half, two years. And there's a huge backlog of bills. And for example, you know, a few weeks back, um, I was at the Chinese American Service League where um, the state owes them a million dollars. And yet the governor did a tour of the agency and walked around as if there were nothing wrong and he didn't have anything to do with um, what they were experiencing. And you know, I just thought it was outrageous. I think the governor should do his job. He 
is doing a disservice to the people of Illinois because he doesn't understand. He's not in touch with the real experiences that people are having and the suffering they're going through because of this lack of a budget. And, you know, and to say a little bit more about, you know, some of these ads, you know, they're blaming the speaker, blaming everybody else but himself. And, you know, I've seen him uh, speak in person where he, you know, wears his flannel, drops his G's and, you know, blames somebody else for what's going on. Um, It's, I think it's dishonest and, you know, people in the state of Illinois deserve better. Who benefits from this, though? Who benefits from people not getting paid and not getting a budget? Because there clearly has to be a political end game here. Who, who's who's reaping a benefit from the conservative hard right not funding these things? Well, I think in the end, you know, the things he's asking for as conditions to passing a budget, you know, they really benefit his rich friends, right? Um so, you know, his whole turnaround agenda is really an attack on organized labor in the state of Illinois. You know, he wants right-to-work zones and, you know, he wants to get rid of workers' compensation. And these are things that middle-class families, you know, this is what built the middle class and, and you know, workers' comp in particular, um, it's essential to getting people back to work. It's an investment in our workforce. And yet, you know, his policies, if they were adopted, would only benefit the business people and his rich friends. So, you know, it's completely um, out of line with what's happening on the ground, what I see every day. I'm just wondering, what do his constituents think, the ones who voted for him, about his policies and about the fact that he hasn't passed a budget in three years. Do they feel like his his inaction, his inability to pass a budget is affecting their lives? Or is there just kind of like a partisan kind of support for him and they just, the Republicans in the state love the fact that he's not passing a budget? Well, I mean, his approval rating has gone down. Um, and uh, there are evaluations of him that, you know, are very realistic about what he hasn't accomplished. But in a recent appearance, he gave himself an A in terms of his accomplishments. And, and, you know, that just shows you how out of touch he is. It's obvious that there's, you know, still stalemate in the budget process. But the legislature has been very busy. In in this last session, in the last few weeks, you've had your own legislation on the floor. The, the House has been very busy. You voted on a number of bills. Tell us a little bit about uh, uh, some of the bills that you've you've seen and that you voted for, and um, and and tell us about uh, what's coming up. I focused on a number of consumer-friendly bills, um, you know, some of which uh, passed and some of which didn't. Right. So, you know, for example, I had one bill that um, I, I posted about, and I think Ed was very enthusiastic about it. Yeah. It was um, it had to do with the amount of rental fees we pay to the cable and telecom companies where, you know, you could get a, you know, what seems like a little charge um, each month for your, you know, modem or cable box. And it's like seven ninety nine or something like that. I think that's what I pay for my modem. Um, but you can end up paying, you know, five or six times the value of the equipment over time when you just have that recurring 
uh, fee on your on your bill. Um, so you know, I propose legislation to put some brakes on that. Uh, but the cable and telecom lobbies are pretty strong and effective, and and they didn't want to see that. But you know, I put that out there because you know we have folks who live you know on very modest incomes in this district, and you know seniors and immigrants and you know folks like that who don't have time to. Uh, go out and buy their own modem or, you know, they don't have time to scrutinize their bill and, you know, feel outraged that they're paying, you know, five times the the cost of this inexpensive piece of equipment. And it's a rental fee that goes on in perpetuity. So, you know, that was an example of something I proposed that I thought would be good for consumers, that would save people money. Um, and unfortunately, that didn't pass my chamber. But you know, I, I put up a good fight and and um, I tried. You know, one of the thing, one of the things that I did learn during the first few months of my first session is that bills never really die in Springfield. So you know, there might be an opportunity to work on it and make it better and bring it back up again next year. Okay. Well, that's actually it leads into a question I had for you. Um, that I didn't want to start with because I was excited to see what you were working on. But how does it feel being a rep? I mean, it must be really intense. It is. And it must be, I mean, you probably had some preconceptions of what it meant to be a lawmaker in Illinois. And now you're you're down in the pits. You're in the Springfield uh, uh, boxing rings or, or whatever. There are fight clubs there. What is it like? Well, you know, it's a tremendous opportunity is the main thing I feel, right? Because we are weighing in on legislation that uh, applies to every person in the state. You know, if it gets passed through the process and it gets signed by the governor and gets enacted, um, it affects everyone in the state of Illinois, right? So it's a tremendous responsibility. Um, I take it seriously. And in the few months that I've been there, I've seen... um, you know, democracy in action. There are community members, advocates, lobbyists, you know, everybody uh, converges on Springfield. And sometimes I get to my office and there's a line outside the door, people waiting to talk to me because, you know, they want to talk to me about the issues that affect them, that they care about, or they might have specific legislation that they're lobbying on. And, you know, I, I try to give everyone... Um, you know, whatever available time I have, I talk to everyone, you know, I don't uh, try to exclude anyone or, or dodge people. Um, but that's, that's one of the um, challenges of, of being a legislator. Um, you know, everybody wants to talk to you. <laughs> they call it lobbying because, you know, people used to loiter around in the lobbies waiting for legislators to talk to them. Sometimes, you know, people follow you in the bathroom. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, how important is, is it for, for citizens or groups or neighborhood organizations to come to Springfield to kind of lobby on behalf of their interests? Is it important to get some FaceTime? It's, it's or could really, I email you? It's really important. I mean, you get more attention with the FaceTime. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I if I see you in my office or, or in the Capitol and you talk to me about something, it makes more of an impression. 
You know, there's this narrative that we sometimes get that downstate is very much against Chicago's interests. Have you found that to be the case at all? Unfortunately, yes. Okay. On a lot of issues, um, there is a huge divide between the uh, opinions of people in Chicago or the legislators that represent Chicago versus uh, downstate. Um, but, you know, there are also opportunities for common ground. So, you know, I wouldn't say that this is the case with every issue, but, uh, you know, sometimes there's there's an impression. And I think sometimes the, the governor and, um, you know, his ads kind of perpetuate this idea that, that uh, you know, there are folks in Chicago who are taking more of the resources than they add in to the coffers, right? But, I mean, that's the opposite of what's true. I mean, I think that with the uh, taxes and, you know, everything collected um, from Chicago, there's actually um, extra that, that, you know, contributes to the entire state's uh, resources. Uh, But it is damaging when you have this impression that, you know, for example, the idea that you know, they have to bail out Chicago schools. I mean, you know, it's a really damaging idea that perpetuates um, this divide. And then you get uh, folks who really need to be voting together to um, help with education in Chicago that, that you know, do the opposite. And it's just because of that idea that, that it's a bailout or, you know, that somehow uh, public schools in Chicago don't deserve, you know, what they're supposed to get. The Trump Diaries. This week, Trump seeks a health care win, even as he doesn't seem to know what's in the bill. The administration seeks to sue the media and muses on the causes of the Civil War. And Trump says he thought this all would be easier. Day 99, April 28th. Trump warned of a major, major conflict with North Korea in an interview. Trump told Reuters he is seeking a diplomatic solution and praised President Xi Jinping of China for his efforts to resolve the dispute over North Korea's missile and nuclear weapons programs. There's a chance we could end up having a major, major conflict with North Korea, said Trump. Saturday is day 100 of the Trump presidency, of course. And Trump told Reuters he thought the presidency would be easier. Said Trump, I loved my previous life. I had so many things going. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. I like to drive. I can't drive anymore. And Republican attempts to repeal Obamacare fell apart again overnight, as a more conservative version of the bill failed to muster votes. At least 18 House Republicans opposed the latest version of the bill, the American Health Care Act, and leaders can lose no more than 22 to win passage if all members vote on the bill. And the economy turned in the weakest performance in three years as consumers slowed their spending. Gross domestic product grew by just 0.7% in the first quarter, following a gain of 2.1% in the fourth quarter, under former President Barack Obama. Brazil was shut down on Friday as the country observed its first general strike in more than two decades. Millions of workers, including public transport staff, bankers, and teachers, took part in the strike, which was in action against the president's proposed pension reforms. Highly unpopular President Michael Temer claims the changes are needed to overcome a recession. 
And Attorney General Jeff Sessions said on Friday that his recusal from Justice Department investigations into the 2016 campaign for president will extend into inquiries into the activities of disgraced former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Flynn, of course, is under fire for his ties to foreign governments. And the United States Postal Inspection Service joined the Department of Justice in a federal probe of Fox News' business practices. The DOJ is investigating 21st Century Fox over settlements it paid to individuals who filed sexual harassment suits against former Fox News CEO Roger Ailes. And Michael Flynn, President Trump's disgraced national security advisor, is under investigation by the Defense Department's Inspector General. Flynn had been warned not to accept compensation from foreign governments without prior approval. And a letter warning Flynn dated October 2014 came more than a year before Flynn received a $45,000 speaking fee from RT, Russia Today, that is the Kremlin-backed news network. And the NSA halted the collection of Americans' emails and texts due to compliance issues with FISA court rules. The warrantless surveillance program was only supposed to collect information from people overseas that mentioned a foreigner under surveillance. However, the NSA ended up collecting messages sent and received domestically as a byproduct. Day 100, April 29th. Trump talked about consolidating his power in an interview with Fox News. Trump dismissed the, quote, archaic rules of the House and Senate using that word four times and suggested they need to be streamlined for the good of the country. He also opined that he didn't like the filibuster and said the filibuster should have been done away with. And the People's Climate March drew thousands in D.C. But rather than pushing for stronger climate action, organizers said this year they're fighting to preserve the gains already made. In a related story today, the EPA removed its climate science site the day before this march on Washington. The website had previously housed data on greenhouse gas emissions and reports on the efforts of climate climate change and its impact on human health. And Trump proclaimed May 1st is, quote, Loyalty Day as a way to, quote, recognize and reaffirm our allegiance to the principles upon which America was built and express pride in those ideals. May Day, of course, is traditionally a workers' rights day. Day 101, April 30th. Trump claimed Andrew Jackson was upset about the Civil War and wondered why the issues, quote, could not have been worked out. In fact, Jackson died 16 years before the war began. Trump suggested that if Jackson had been president a little later, you wouldn't have had the Civil War during an interview on Sirius XM. People don't realize, you know, the Civil War. If you think about it, why? People don't ask that question, but why was there a Civil War? Why could that one not have been worked out? In fact, the causes of the Civil War are frequently discussed. It's a major part of American history, and slavery was the root cause. And Rince Privis said the Trump administration has looked at changes to libel laws that would curtail press freedoms. Trump has frequently slammed the press for its coverage of him and has suggested changing libel laws. Libel is, of course, when a defamatory statement is made about someone and published. The American press enjoys a lot of freedom from lawsuits to do Sullivan versus New York Times, as well as the First Amendment's guarantee of free speech. Day 102, May 1st. Congress reached a bipartisan agreement on Sunday to fund the government through September, avoiding a shutdown on the Republicans' watch. The deal increases funding for border security in the military, but doesn't provide for a wall along the Mexican border. Early returns from a look at this budget proposal say that Democrats won many of the things they'd sought, and conservatives were howling with outrage, saying Trump had been rolled. And Trump spoke with the Philippine leader, Rodrigo Duterte, and in surprise, invited him to the White House. Mr. Duterte has led a brutal crackdown on drugs in his country that has left thousands dead. Duterte, however, said on Monday that he might not accept Trump's invitation because he was, quote, tied up with a busy schedule. I cannot make any definite promise, Duterte said, adding, I'm supposed to go to Russia. I'm also supposed to go to Israel. 
And Sebastian Gorka, a West Wing advisor to Trump who's become a flashpoint, is likely to be moved out of the White House. Gorka, a former editor at Breitbart News, also a right-wing website, is a close friend of Stephen Bannon. Mr. Gorka memorably declared, quote, that alpha males are back as an assertion of the distance between the Obama administration and the current one. He has been accused of having links to far-right groups in Europe, and critics of his hardline views on Islam have accused him of Islamophobia. Congress is poised to allocate more than $120 million to help cover the escalating costs of protecting Trump and Trump Tower under the bipartisan spending agreement. About half the money, nearly $60 million, is earmarked for the Secret Service. But another $60 million is an extraordinary allocation to reimburse municipalities strained by Trump's travels to New York and Florida. It will also cost apparently $23 million to retrofit Trump Tower. And the North Carolina General Assembly is debating two proposals that would chill protests. One of those bills, which passed in the House last week, would remove civil liability for any driver who hits a protester in the street during a protest. A second bill would have created the new felony crime of economic terrorism. If a protest causes a business to lose more than $1,000 of business during a protest, such as the one that roiled Charlotte last year, a protester could be charged with a felony. That was recently voted down in the House. Day 103, May 2nd. The Department of Justice has decided not to charge two white officers who shot and killed a black man in Louisiana last summer. Video footage appearing to show the officers holding down Alton Sterling as they fired their weapons sparked days of protests in Baton Rouge. The decision not to prosecute the two officers comes under a new American government and a new head of the Justice Department, Attorney General Jeff Sessions. And the latest Republican effort to repeal Obamacare is on the rocks again, now with Representative Fred Upton coming out against the new bill. Upton, who has been in the House for 30 years, is a major player. He said the bill would, quote, torpedo protections for people with pre-existing conditions. No vote has yet been scheduled on the bill, despite Trump's urging. And Trump claimed the United States needs, quote, a good shutdown in September to fix the Senate mess. Trump doesn't like the fact that Senate rules require a 60-vote supermajority to approve most major legislation. Trump's solution is to either elect more Republican senators in the 2018 midterms or, quote, change the rules now to 51% and scrap the legislative filibuster altogether. And Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross described the cruise missile attack on Syria as, quote, after-dinner entertainment for guests dining at Trump's Mar-a-Lago Club. That happened on the 6th of April when President decided to launch that strike. Ross was speaking at an economics conference in California and recounted the scene at the Florida State when Trump interrupted dessert to form Chinese President Xi Jinping that the United States had just attacked a Syrian airfield. Said Ross, just as dessert was being served, the President explained to Mr. Xi he had something he wanted to tell him, which was the launching of 59 missiles into Syria. It was in lieu of after-dinner entertainment. Variety magazine reported that the audience laughed at Ross's recollection of the event. Ross added, the thing was it didn't cost the President anything to have that entertainment. And Trump is placing anti-abortion activist Theresa Manning in charge of the Title X program, which provides family planning funding for poor Americans or those without health insurance. Manning, who was a former lobbyist with the National Right to Life Committee and legislative analyst for the Conservative Family Research Council, has criticized several family planning methods over the course of her career. She said during a 2003 NPR interview, quote, of course contraception doesn't work. About 4 million Americans receive family planning coverage through the Title X program, and the majority of them are low-income people and people of color. Day 104, May 3rd. FBI Director James Comey was grilled today by lawmakers on investigations into Hillary Clinton's emails and into Russian meddling in the U.S. election, saying that implications he affected the outcome made him, quote, mildly nauseous. Comey's comments were his first public explanation about his actions. Comey said that failing to inform Congress about developments in Clinton's emails on the eve of the election would have, quote, required an act of concealment. 
Comey said, quote, concealment in my view would have been catastrophic. Mrs. Clinton ramped up the pressure on Comey yesterday saying, quote, that if the election had been held on October 27th, I'd be your president. She also harshly criticized Trump and described herself as, quote, part of the resistance. Comey otherwise said little to senators largely avoiding comment on current investigations. And Sally Yates is expected to contradict the administration's version of events surrounding disgraced former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. The former acting attorney general is prepared to testify before a Senate panel next week that she gave forceful warnings to the White House that Flynn was lying when he denied in public and private that he discussed U.S. sanctions on Russia in conversations with a Russian ambassador, which made him potentially vulnerable to being compromised by Russia. And the Times reported that with two days left before an 11-day congressional recess and no vote scheduled, House Republican leaders again considered last-minute changes to their latest attempt to repeal Obamacare, including at least $8 billion in extra spending. This potential new willingness to throw money at the bill underscored the price failure will have. Trump's approval ratings this week hovered around 39%, showing no improvement at all. These are the Trump Diaries. Alice McGordy from Out of Vogue spoke to Sarah Walker and Cecilia Garcia from Pueblo Sin Fronteras Familia Latina Unida about the fear in Chicago's Latino community, how deportations destroy families, and the cruelty of the immigration system. Out of Vogue is Lumpen's punk rock show. It airs the first and third Monday of the month from 6 to 8 p.m. This is Alice, and I'm here with Sarah and Cecilia from Sin Fronteras, or would you prefer it to be called... uh we have a lot of names, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> We're Familia Latina Unida. We're Pueblo Sin Fronteras or Centro Sin Fronteras and Lincoln United Methodist Church. Can you tell me a little background on the organization? Uh, when did it start? How <laughs> did it start? Things like that. The history of um, Pueblo Sin Fronteras comes with the story of Rudy Lozano, who was an activist here in Chicago who was killed In 1983, his sister, Emma Lozano, who's our pastor, um, in 1987 founded Pueblo Sin Fronteras to carry on the work of her brother. Mm -hmm. And over the years, they worked especially um, in terms of stopping gentrification, um, education for undocumented communities, control of parents who are undocumented of their own children's education. Mm -hmm. They had a lot of battles like that up on the north side. And what happened was eventually, a lot of them at that time in like the late 90s, early 2000s, they're in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And eventually they were kicked out of the Catholic Church. And because the community is so faithful, Mm -hmm. as well as involved in fighting for social justice issues, uh, they began to worship in the center because Mm -hmm. they were kicked out of the Catholic Church. Why were they kicked out of the Catholic Church? Or is that too long of a story? Oh, well, the, the, the short answer is racism. Okay. <laughs> they wanted to fight for justice, and the Catholic Church didn't like that. You know, they didn't hmm. want to okay. go against the government. And basically, white priests kicked a bunch of Latino women out, hmm. primarily women, out. And they still wanted to worship, and they still wanted to practice their faith. So they began to worship within the actual community center. And that's how we got Adalberto United Methodist Church. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were worshiping and then they eventually became a United Methodist entity. And then eventually Elvira took sanctuary there and all, all that kind of story. Mm. And now you're located in Pilsen. Both churches are, are still established. So Adalberto is still there in Humble Park as well. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. okay. How many uh, members would you say you have? Or is it all volunteers, paid staff, mixture? 
It's a mixture, but I would say over 100. I mean, we have members, and then that's how I became a member, and then now I volunteer. Mm -hmm. So basically, um, and I'll just tell you a little bit of my story. I became a member about three years ago when my husband was deported, Mm -hmm. and I was invited by Elvira Arellano, and I never knew anything in terms of immigration. I thought it was a quick fix since I'm an American citizen, and I petitioned my husband. I thought it was a done deal, and it was just how blind I was to how bad our system is for everyone in general, especially for families. And that's when I became involved. It, it kind of helps me, too, emotionally, mm-hmm. trying to help. I believe that knowing the family knows that I've already been through that situation, they kind of can, you know, relate to me. So I do the support, and we also try to help in, in legal matters. Well, we can. Obviously, we're not lawyers, but then we forward the information if it's needed with the lawyer that we have that are with us. Let's talk more about what's going on right now. One of the questions I wanted to ask was, I mean, I think a lot of people think that more deportations are happening currently because it's so important to President Trump. Is that true? Have the deportations been happening at the same rate all along? What have you noticed? What has your experience been? We were talking about this actually on the way over (laughs) here. Mm -hmm. So under Obama's presidency, it was three million that were deported. Um, In actuality, you mean the entire yes, from the two thousand and eight and until he left. So he's one of the presidents that had the most amount of deportations. What happened is in nineteen ninety six when Bill Clinton he signed the IRA IRA Act, which was the uh, Act Against Terrorism. And that's basically what has triggered deportations. And that's what we're trying to fix. But no, uh, there hasn't been any changes. And there isn't an increase. Basically, Donald Trump just made it very public. Right. (laughs) So there, you know, Obama was a little more subtle. We knew that ICE would still go at the door. Uh, My husband, well, he was just driving and he didn't have a driver's license. It was under the officer's discretion and they Mm -hmm. called ICE. So nothing really has changed. The only thing is that he just made it very public to, I believe, instill the fear in the communities. And it's actually working because people are very afraid right now. One thing we have noticed is that ICE agents and ICE as an entity has become emboldened Mm -hmm. because of all this Mm -hmm. rhetoric. And so I would say in in terms of raids, I don't have numbers right now of if there's been a a sharp increase. Mm -hmm. But what we have seen with our cases is that they are more emboldened to not use discretion to close a case, more emboldened to treat with immense disrespect people who are in ICE custody Mm -hmm. or to intimidate people within ICE custody. The Dreamer, who was from Argentina, who's been deported, she was followed home after she spoke out at a press conference. Mm-hmm. And she was a DACA recipient who didn't renew her DACA status. So they targeted her. So that's like political intimidation. So mm-hmm. now if Dreamers or anyone comes out and you know speaks against it, now they have that in the back of their mind. So the whole agency is more emboldened to do things like that. Also, the likelihood of them using things that were put under the Obama administration administration that were good things, such as prosecutorial discretion, which allowed any judge the ability to close a case if they wanted to. It didn't mean they have to. Mm -hmm. They're probably going to be a lot less likely to do that. Other things like the discretion um, that Obama gave to any and all officers or judges to, if somebody is a primary caretaker of a minor child, whether that child is undocumented or not, they are considered to be under Obama, Mm -hmm. the lowest priority for deportation. And it even allowed, you know, a, a CPD officer or any or any kind of police officer to go, okay, 
I'm going to just let you go and I'm not going to follow up on this or a judge. Okay, I'm just going to close this case. That's probably a lot less likely to help people out now. And I've already seen information circulating on the internet about how people should not put pressure on undocumented people to appear at rallies, to speak out in public because of that danger. So, uh, well, that is a good segue into (laughs) one of the other things I want to talk about, which is what rights do people have, targeted people, undocumented people, and what can they do to resist this, if anything? Well, one one recommendation, because we've also had Know Your Rights Defend Workshops, is we they do have rights. They have rights if they are, you know, stopped by an officer. Um, they can just give them their name. They don't have to give any other information. You know, I have the right to remain silent. I need to speak to my lawyer. And that's basically what we've been instilling them, because what happens is when once they're detained, a lot of them are harassed. A lot of them are pressured, especially if you're a mom. They can threaten that they'll take your children away, that they'll, you know, the state will beat their guardians now. Hmm. So they use a lot of intimidation. That was how my husband signed his uh, voluntary deportation. He's like, oh, you're married to an American citizen. You have American citizen children. Just go. You come back. It's been four years, and Hmm. obviously he's not here. So those are the things that I I believe that knowing, educating, and bringing awareness, knowing your rights, it's what's going to help every individual. So that's what we always, you know, try to maintain calm. You have the right to remain silent. Let them know that you need to speak to your lawyer. And then we also give if they go to your house, you know, show the documentation. If they're looking for that person, we'll just let that person that ICE is looking for step outside of the door. Because this way, if there's other people that are undocumented, they can also uh, be in danger of being deported as well. Right. And making sure that the paperwork is complete. And, right. Because sometimes yes. mm-hmm. there'll be a warrant without a signature. Or yes, like exactly. That. Yes. So we have samples like this right. is how the, you know, the ICE order and this is how signed by the judge so that they know. Exactly. Right. Great. So even you can't get a driver's license if you're undocumented, correct? Uh, no, that did change. That you did actually change. can have okay. one now. But in Illinois. In, yes, in Illinois. So maybe it's not every state because exactly. I heard that there's now they're criminalizing everything so that even something like getting pulled over and, and not having a license And that's the concern. So yeah. right now, even though Illinois does provide the TVDL, the tourist driver's license, because of the Trump administration, everyone's afraid to go get one because they're like, okay, we go get one. We're in the system. They're going to come and get us. And they look different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. look different. So if you're pulled over by a police officer, that pretty much identifies you. It's a different color. It says mm-hmm. different things on it. I mean, it's a help in the sense that they can't arrest you in that moment. Okay. Because you are driving legally. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, if you have some racist police officer, mm-hmm. they would be maybe more inclined to target you in other ways, find any little thing on the car that's that's right, not up to right. date or mm-hmm. give you a ticket for something else or be abusive towards you, whatever, whatever those things are. So, you know, as compared to like a dreamer, say, when they apply for DACA, they are eligible to get a standard, quote unquote, driver's mm-hmm. license. So that doesn't automatically identify them. But the other ones are like they're purple. And so it is an identifier. So there's always a catch. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there was one thing that I just thought of. Uh, we we're talking about how there hasn't really been a specific mass uptick in deportations yet mm-hmm. under Donald Trump. Um, however... The the fact that they are highlighting the fact that they are going to just target, quote unquote, criminals. And Cecilia talked about the criminalization of people for, say, minor drug offenses and things like that. I think it's very important to note that many, 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 many undocumented people obviously work with an illegal social. They work illegally. Also, they've committed the technical crime of entering illegally. So... (laughs) 
when Donald Trump says we're going to target criminals, they're clearly going, they're going to, they're not just talking about a murderer Mm -hmm. or a rapist. They're talking about anyone who's worked illegally, which is eight or nine million people, 10 Mm -hmm. million people. And they'll put it in the media as if these are big, bad criminals. But the woman in Arizona, for instance, Guadalupe, she was a 36-year-old mother of four whose crime was she worked with an illegally obtained social. Mm -hmm. That was her only charge. And they're putting that in the media as if we're deporting the criminals only. But that's not true. And I have heard of, you know, that the buses and the the planes arriving into Mexico, the deportation buses and planes, they have, there have been more of them and more frequently. So, and I think, though, that these big marches that we saw after uh, Inauguration Day has slowed the role Mm -hmm. of Donald Trump and his administration. Mm -hmm. We were convinced that DACA was going to get taken away that first Monday. Mm-hmm. We were convinced of that. We were hearing through different sources and and why shouldn't we have believed that? You know, I think those big marches stopped that. I think that it's still a high potential that they will take that away and that they will increase raids, but I think that because this issue is so uh, potentially explosive for them and they've seen how people reacted to the Muslim ban and they've mm-hmm. seen how people went out for the big women's marches that, that mm-hmm. Saturday after Inauguration mm-hmm. Day, I think that that shows how important mobilization is and that we need to remember that going forward because they're going to use every trick in the book to do even more than 3 million Mm -hmm. um, deportations and everything is going to become criminalized. One issue in the questions that we got to look at before we came in (laughs) about this idea that human rights are more important than what is legal, I think that's very important because no human is illegal Mm -hmm. and they're going to criminalize just existing. They already have. I mean, and they're just going to they're going to double down on that. So I just wanted to focus on that and say that even though that they're saying, you know, they've toned down their rhetoric, but that doesn't mean they're going to tone down what they really want to do. We know what they really want to do. We know that they want to deport absolutely everyone that they possibly can. And uh, we should just keep that in the front of our minds that even if somebody is on paper a criminal, (laughs) It doesn't mean that they're truly a violent person. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I noticed, too, the irony is that um, Donald Trump is an American citizen and he's married to an immigrant. Mm -hmm. You know, and we know that there was actually um, some discrepancies with Melania during, uh, you know, her working as a model. Yet she's still here. She didn't have to decide whether, you know, she takes her son to her country of birth or leaves him with Donald. Right. And that's what I'm saying. We live in a, a democratic country yet it doesn't seem like it because only the rich and powerful and privileged get to get away with these things and well me because I'm an American citizen but I'm not this famous person I'm not rich my husband was taken away and it is a human rights violation to us as American citizens what the suffering of our children because in the end they see this trauma they you know they live it they become resentful you know, in, in my case, it, it was so bad that even DCFS got involved and they tried to take my kids away. And I'm like, the reason my this has been triggered is because the government took their father away. You know, it's all it's a, a snowball effect. But that's the that's the only reality that I just can't seem to grasp. Like, why to, is he doing this to families when he has the same situation with his? You know, that and that's what I, I can't comprehend. <laughs> What's Up spoke with a teacher in Kenwood about living in the shadows with a questionable immigration status. What's Up, a production of the students at Yolo Cali, airs every Saturday at noon. Yes, and right now we're going to have an interview with a teacher from Kenwood Academy. So um, 
Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Um, how would you describe your status in the United States? As limbo, I think is the best word to describe it. I'm a DACA recipient, so I'm still kind of in, in between. How old were you when you arrived to the United States? I was about seven years old the first time when I came, and I've been here since then. Do you have any memory of that journey to the United States? Actually, I do. I remember everything. Um, it was with me and my brother and mom and my cousin that we came through um, the border, so we had to kind of cross the desert. Um, I always had, like, dreams about it, but... I just figured that there were dreams until I asked my mom because um, she used to tell us not to look up because there were flies up in the air. They were going to see us. But she was talking about the actual helicopters because they could see the from your eyes that they would glisten so they could actually catch you. Um, so I remember a lot of the things just crossing over. Wow. Um, and you came when you were just seven years old. How was your experience in grammar school trying to learn this language and this new culture? Um, it was hard. Um, they placed me actually back a year. Um, so I was in a class with first graders, and I was really supposed to be in second grade. Um, I was in a bilingual class, so everything was spoken in Spanish. But everything that we were learning was everything I already knew. I already knew how to read do math, multiplications, fractions, everything. Um, and then I was very, very dark as well when I had just arrived from Mexico. And I had long kind of like dark hair. And my mom would always do the pigtail, so I was always made fun of. So I always had to deal with that until fifth grade when I actually started learning English, when I was placed in an old English class. And it was hard, very hard. Do you think that you were ever discriminated be uh, because of your legal status by the school system? Um, it didn't hit me until I was really a sophomore in high school when I had to um, get the driver's license and do all of that, that they asked for the social security that I realized that I really couldn't. Um, I did have a pretty good support system at school, though. Um, so they didn't make me feel bad. They were just like, you know what? You can still get your permit. You can do everything. And whenever you're able to get Social Security, then you get your driver's license. Awesome. Now, you work at a school now. You're an educator. As an educator, how do you kind of manage or how can you, what, how do you bring or help to these undocumented students that might be in your school or might not be in your school? So in my school, actually, it's primarily African-American. Uh, we have a very small population of Latinos. Um, what I try to do is really get them informed of what it is to be undocumented about the immigration system that we face right now because they're really unaware of it. But they don't realize that a lot of people there, especially from Africa that we have in our school, are also happen to be undocumented. So it brings a reality to them that they're thinking they live in this perfect bubble, but I'm able to really get them informed and they are able to realize what is really happening. So everything they hear in the news, they don't just take as one-sided. And I do have a very small group of kids that come to me, of students, that um, I'm really afraid for them because I know they don't qualify for DACA. And they're ending up, um, one's going to go to Harold Washington. 
Um, so I'm always trying to give them as much support as I can whenever they need help, especially translating and speaking, since they don't know English that well at all. But I've been really trying to push them to really learn it, make sure they know their um, their rights, so they have an idea of how to navigate the real world. Now, many times we hear about like super achieving undocumented students, but we rarely talk about the obstacles that these students face going to college. What obstacles did you have to overcome going to college? Well, when I went to college is before DACA was available. So financially, I took the same route as some of you are taking right now, going to community college. Um, I just had to work a full-time job, and my parents helped me, uh, and go to school full-time. So that was the big struggle, just trying to manage everything, working, um, a low-paying job, and going to school, keeping my grades up. And then I was actually able to get a couple of scholarships to help to pay for my school. Did you ever hide your status for fear? I did. I did. I was never very open about it unless somebody asked, really. And if I felt comfortable with the person, knowing that they wouldn't use it against me, because I knew there's a lot of people that are just plain evil, and they can use it against you. So I didn't want to take that risk. So I always kind of kept it. And honestly, let's be honest, nobody would ever know if you're undocumented or not unless you tell them. Because we all walk around like a regular old citizen of this country. Now, what would you what advice would you give undocumented students that might be losing hope because of all the political climate that the country is facing? Then we need to keep on going because there's a lot of people they are still fighting for it. I know it's rough and it can bring your hopes down because I know it did to me. Um, but there's still hope. It's not the end of it and we have to keep on fighting because it's we know that a lot of people are not going to take it. Um, so I just have to say that we have to keep on fight, fighting, just fighting. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, we're really happy to have you in today. We're really happy uh, to know a little bit more of your story. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. <laughs>